So a year ago, we recorded an episode about D&D. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really about D&D. It was, it was using D&D as an example. Yeah. We wrote this episode to think about the way that D&D is compared to other role-playing games, or actually more like how other role-playing games are compared to D&D, and what that comparison leaves out about D&D and about the nature of the various games that are being created under the role-playing game umbrella term. So that's what we have for you. Today we have an episode that we recorded over a year ago that's sort of about D&D, but not really. Mm -hmm. And we hope you enjoy it. Today we're talking about games in a broader sense than usual. Not just how they're played, but in all the ways they exist in our lives. More specifically, we'll talk about Dungeons and Dragons, the grandparent of the RPG industry, and still by far the biggest and best known. D&D is more than a role-playing game. It's got merch, it shows up in movies, it's in Stranger Things on Netflix, even Vin Diesel plays it. So when you're making your own RPG... What does it mean to compete with D&D? Let's get into it. So, hi, I'm Hannah, and I've never played D&D before. I know that it's a game with dungeons. I know you have a character sheet. I think your character can die, and you, like, start weak and level up and get stronger over time. Maybe there are tieflings. I have no idea what a tiefling is. <laughs> hi, I'm Evan. I played D&D when I was a little kid, and I still do. I had a cool uncle who sent me the guidebooks he had used and his old character sheets. One of them was an elf named Gordon Lightfoot. I didn't get the reference. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I GM'd games as a kid, and as an adult, I've GM'd games for kids, and I'm in a campaign right now. That said, I'm not really an expert in the game. Like, I know what a tiefling is. Oh, what's a tiefling? It's like, well, there's a whole thing in D&D about demons and devils, and they're not at all the same thing. But it's, it's one or the other of them, or maybe both, getting married to a human, oh, making oh. a little baby. Oh. And the baby's a tiefling. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. It's like a cute little demon baby. Can you play as a tiefling? You can. Is it like one of those things where it's frowned against or it's like totally fr frowned against, frowned upon? <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is it one of those things where it's frowned upon to play as a tiefling or is it like a pretty normal choice to make? I think at this point it's pretty normal. Like in the early editions, that would have been like a special request from your GM. Oh, okay. See, I'm learning so much already. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the experience of making indie RPGs in this domain that D&D &D created and continues to dominate. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a statement you've probably heard before. Sometimes it's expressed in frustration, sometimes with a spirit of enthusiastic discovery. I'm going to say it 
uh, in both. Here's enthusiastic discovery. No, I'll start with frustration and we'll end on a high note. Here's frustration. Okay, are you ready? <sighs> there are other games than D&D, you know, yeah. Evan. Yeah, I hear it's it. It's like you're only playing D&D. There's other games than D&D. Thanks for the shame. <laughs> do you want to do you want to <laughs> express a spirit of enthusiastic discovery? There's other games than D&D, you know. <laughs> wow, really? Tell me about them. Oh, you're really calling me out on that. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be the beginning of a beautiful uh, <laughs> gateway. So, like, this is even something we've said personally. This obviously applies to us. We are obviously trying to create games in this space. I know I've said it out of frustration before. I mean, I say it. I, I can't stop myself from saying it when I hear somebody who's only played D&D and says, you know, I love D&D, it's just not so much, you know, all the rules and the fighting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so, I mean, the RPG market is still relatively small. And because of that, it's easy to compare yourself with the top dog in the field. Like, we all want to make a living, and it would be nice to expand the number of people who were aware of other RPGs who, like, maybe that would mean they'd consider buying ours. Mm -hmm. That'd be nice. Sure would. So it can also feel really frustrating to see the same few games played over and over again on YouTube or on podcasts, and to see D&D be one of the only RPGs to break through to mainstream media representation. It feels like there's a boundary between D&D players and people who play indie RPGs, and that's kind of disheartening. But this kind of comparison hasn't actually done us a lot of good. What does it mean to tell a D&D player, there are games besides D&D? Why are people actually playing D&D? And do those reasons actually apply to the games that we want to recommend to them? So we think that to talk about D&D as just a game is to talk about Star Wars as just a movie. Um, so we're going to talk about both of these things, not in terms of D&D the game or Star Wars movies, but in terms of the cultural space they create. And that begs the question, what is a cultural space? So we're using cultural space to describe a context and a method that culture is experienced. So that could mean a physical space or a digital space. We're going to talk about the ideas of social spaces, capitalist spaces, and personal identity space. And if all that sounds uh, arbitrary, it is. Culture is made up of all these spaces, and they all overlap. There's a lot more that we're probably not touching on. These are just some ways of breaking down conversations about D&D &D as an entity that's bigger than the contents of the rule books. So let's start by going back to the Star Wars example. What makes Star Wars more than a bunch of movies? In terms of physical space, Star Wars exists in the theater, but also in your living room. It's made of tactile physical objects like an art book, a BB-8 plushie, or a Williams-Sonoma Millennium Falcon waffle maker. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of syllables there. It just keeps going. <laughs> That's a verbal space as well. Yeah, a verbal space. <laughs> <laughs> 
As a digital space, Star Wars exists in forums, fanfic, it's all over social media, it's in YouTube reviews and critiques. As a social space, Star Wars is debates with your friends about the best order to watch the movies in. It's making a new friend when you see somebody in line at your favorite cafe and you're like, hey, that's a cool Princess Leia shirt. It's the fact that You know, like, I personally haven't really engaged with Star Wars much, but when somebody asks me, I can, like, humble brag that Carrie Fisher once over-tweezed my mom's eyebrows in a Power of Women workshop they did together, (laughs) and to this day, my mom has one lopsided eyebrow, courtesy Carrie Fisher. (laughs) That's a space. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, I am not... Star Wars isn't necessarily my thing, but I know enough of it to be able to do, do um, you know, a total uh, non sequitur self-insert. Well, it's meaningful to be able to engage in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's like even just knowing enough to be like, oh, yeah, Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia. Um, yeah, knowing the in-jokes, knowing the references. Um, although now she's like a general. Is she a general now? Leia? Yeah. Yeah, she is. All right. So see, it's like, this is how much I know about Star Wars. But that like that allows me to get to dip a toe into the conversation and stick around to learn more if I want. So Star Wars exists in all these spaces. It's in jokes, it's references in other forms of media. Like that's a really social thing. It obviously exists in a capitalist space. You know, the movie tickets, the Disney Plus subscriptions, Target aisles packed with collectibles, Halloween costumes, the shirts, the waffle maker from earlier, (laughs) (laughs) you know, all the way up to like the offices of Disney CEOs and all the way down to individuals buying their stuff. And that gets to the idea of it as an identity space as well. And the feeling of identifying with the stories or... Which character are you quizzes online? Having your own ranking of the movies and, you know, which movies you even consider to exist. All of that can be from the perspective of being a Star Wars fan. And all of that is still just some of the ways that people interact with Star Wars. It's clearly a lot more than just watching a movie. So that leads us into when somebody says, you know, there are other movies than just Star Wars. That is true. There are a lot of them. Um, But as an argument for why someone should instead watch an indie film, it kind of fails to acknowledge the depth and breadth of what Star Wars means to a person, to a group of friends, to institutions, and to culture. So D&D is very much the same. It's a physical space where we play at somebody's home, on their table, in a cafe or a game store or at a convention. And it has a presence across all of these different kinds of spaces we've mentioned, digital, social, capitalist, and identity. And let's talk for a minute about the identity spaces that D&D occupies. It could mean being a player or being a GM or being part of a specific group. It could mean identifying as a con-going D&D crowd, or it could mean having your own favorite story or character that you bring into conversations. 
It could mean you identify as a rules expert, or just like I'm a into the combat player, or I'm a into the stories player. You could be a collector of the books of the miniatures. You could be a fan of a specific actual play podcast, and all that's just a few examples of the way people internalize D and D as a part of themselves. I think those are important because when we're telling people there are other RPGs, we're appealing to a certain kind of identity—the identity of being a tabletop role-playing gamer. And to the extent that somebody actually identifies that way, sure, they might be interested in branching into some indie RPGs. But that's not necessarily an identity that all or even most D and D players actually have about themselves. So let's get back to our own games. In a certain sense, we operate under the shadow of D and D, and there are a lot of things that are going to make it hard to get out from under that shadow. But we can try to sidestep it a little bit by understanding the cultural spaces of D and D, and then thinking more generally about what spaces we want our own games to occupy. We can start to move out of this mindset of competing with D and D. And think a little more proactively about how to make our own games have their own space in people's lives. So we're going to take a look at Questlandia Two and Starship Ultralux, and talk about what cultural spaces we're hoping to occupy, and are excited to design for. It's a given for both games that they're going to occupy a few sort of general RPG spaces, like playing a game around a table with friends. Reading those rules, telling a shared story. We're going to focus on some of the unique spaces we're hoping to create for each of these games. We're going to take a look at two of our own games that we're working on, Questlandia 2 and Starship Ultralux, to talk a little bit about what cultural spaces we're hoping to occupy and what we're excited to design for. And those spaces don't even necessarily have to be game spaces. I mean, that could、mm-hmm. be、uh, designing for the space of People who love Twin Peaks, who are who it's like I don't even know what space those people occupy. Like the, <laughs> it's the surreal the, space, yeah, it's like the surreal <laughs> space of the the Black Lodge, the space where the owls are always watching.、Um, so <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna try to look at our own games and think a little bit outside of the box about what our own hopes are. In this world where D and D exists as this like monolithic presence, and where we stand in that, I think that sounds really good. I think that was that was well said. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so, Evan, do you want to start by talking a little bit about Questlandia Two and what spaces we like, what our hopes are, and what spaces we hope Questlandia Two might occupy? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind. Was one of the initial goals we had that was like the seed of the whole game. Well, if not the seed, it was a seed, lots of seeds, which was the idea of a shared meta universe for the game, so that different players could all get together and actually talk about 
their specific games of Questlandia, the worlds they visited, and have like a common framework for chatting about those. So in terms of a cultural space, we're looking at that space where people talk about the cool game they played <laughs> and like the conversations about the worlds you built and the stories you told. And we want Questlandia to fit in there in a way that we felt like with the original game, it didn't fit because the context was so freewheeling from game to game. Like it just, there was almost nothing in common with the worlds of Questlandia, except, you know, very vague, high-minded themes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like the likelihood that your game would have an island that was actually like a giant sentient hand is probably higher than in some games, mm -hmm. but not necessarily a defining shareable feature of the game. And the game had nothing to incentivize talking. Like it doesn't say as part of Questlandia, uh, talk to other groups about playing Questlandia. Mm -hmm. So with Questlandia where it is now as a ghost journey through the multiverse, uh, maybe it can fit into a ghost stories around the campfire kind of framework. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So with that, you know, I think that we have this hope that the meta plot can also bring out like this space of hypothetical discussion where the stories that you share emphasize the themes of the game and the things that like we care about and we're trying to communicate and that maybe that can be like a fertile space for people sitting down and talking about just like questions of what makes a society good or bad and like how those underlying beliefs play out in a culture what a person's responsibility is to their society and how people relate to the world around them and i don't mean that on the level of like you know, Evan, how sometimes like you'd read a book in class or do an exercise in school and then it would be like, now discuss. Yeah. <laughs> how did this relate back to? And it like takes like, it just like sucks the air out of everything that felt meaningful about what you just did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't want that, but I want that at the level of like that maybe people who like uh, Princess Mononoke or like Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind also care about environmentalism. Yeah. I feel like an important aspect of that is, is, is creating hopeful conversations about society, like centering on the idea of how a society uh, could be good, could be better, you know, imagining a nice place. And it's not like Questlandia worlds are nice places exactly, but they have redeeming qualities. They're good places in trouble very often. And I mean, in my life at this point in time, there's a lot of conversations about society. And I would love for Questlandia conversations to be in a healing, hopeful space as opposed to a, uh, oh my God, stuff is really messed up space, which is one that I occupy enough already. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's something that we've talked about when we've talked about the redesign and that Questlandia won sort of accidentally through some of the mechanics that we made could incentivize this like, oh, some men want to watch, just want to watch the world burn mentality. You know, like there was mm-hmm. this point where your society started to crumble around you based on the actions of your characters and that could become a runaway train and like could become kind of, I don't know, you were just like, oh yeah, this has become a game about shitty people doing shitty things in their shitty world and mm-hmm. then it all falls to the ground. And like, I don't think we meant to design that game. <laughs> um, and not every game played out like that, but like the the opportunity to do that was there. And it seems right. like with this game, we want to do like less of like, uh, no, actually you can't play the Joker in this game. Um, this is more like a, a pattern language, mm-hmm. which I, I feel like we've mentioned pattern language before. It's this book from the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. 70s that like a bunch of architects wrote where they wrote these patterns for ways that they thought the spaces people occupy can be better designed to create a more healing, healthy world all the way down from how to do the like the trim of your baseboards to all the way up to like designing the layout of a city. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's just a very rigorous and sincere idea of how a society could be much better. Which, well, it would be beautiful if this idea <laughs> could uh, occupy some of that space. And I'm not saying that we're going to create the pattern language of role-playing games. Yeah, I think we're already clear that this is going to be the war and peace of role-playing games. Yeah, I mean, like, there's only so many spaces that we can occupy in terms <laughs> of, like, <laughs> you know, uh, a masterpiece. But um, it's, you know, like, that is that is a, like a a thing that has already been created that brings good feelings that we uh, aspire to. Also do. <laughs> I, feel like my, I feel like my sentence construction is really shattered today. But <laughs> Anyway, what else? What are some other spaces we're hoping to occupy? Well, to expand on the idea that Q2 worlds will be worthwhile worlds, worlds with goodness in them, and not just complete dumpster fireplaces. Uh, In the rules, we've been looking at ways to encourage players to examine their worlds and find places of beauty in their worlds and appreciate the construction and natural world in history that is going on in their society. To the extent that we're putting that in the game, I feel like it's a similar space as like literally putting in like literally putting an episode of planet earth on the TV, like watching a documentary or going on a hike or reading a bird watching book, basically appreciating the natural world, learning more about it and how it's connected and building up a connection to it. So like, a game for people who think that caves 
are rad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that could be the subtitle. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and we've really struggled with our games to come up with sort of the subtitle. So I think that Questlandia, <laughs> colon, <laughs> a game for people who think that caves are rad, really actually... It it just like gets it. It gets mm-hmm. at the essence of it. It gets it. Well, part of the essence. <laughs> <laughs> also, there are ghosts. <laughs> uh, we need a few more subtitles to get the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to sort of sum up those spaces and some of the spaces we want Questlandia to occupy, we want it to occupy, um, you know, this through this meta plot, we want people to be able to have shared conversations about the game where they're like, oh, yeah, I've played Questlandia too. I kind of know. I know how that goes. I know the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what a junk poet ghost is. Yeah. And not just conversations about a game you've played, but more generally conversations about the world, about your society, about your hopes and what you what you can imagine a better world looking like. I personally really like those conversations. And I'd be very happy if discussions of Questlandia games occupied the same spirit of discovery and solidarity building and just the belief that the world can be better and that it's worth knowing and protecting and improving. And with that, I like the idea that people could come to the game having never played a role-playing game before, but being drawn in by um, these sort of like adjacent but seemingly disconnected likes. Like, oh, yeah, you love just like sitting down and watching Planet Earth because caves are cool. Why not try Questlandia? We (laughs) can have so many caves. (laughs) (laughs) That feels good. (laughs) Um, Because, I mean, that's always been... That's always been really important to me. And I think, you know, when we made Questlandia 1, we tried to pitch it as like a game for people. Like, this is a great game for people who have never played a role-playing game before. But it was a little bit hard to, like, while that was the intention, I think that some of our mechanics were also like first-time game design mechanics. Like, they were a little bit clunky and We Mm -hmm. didn't know how to work with an editor yet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Even like the way that the pages were laid out had a lot of accessibility issues. So like being on this side, I feel more equipped than ever to try to make a game for people who have never played a role-playing game before, who I think would actually really love the experience, not because they would just love this general concept of like, a role-playing game, which means so many different things, which is what this episode is about, but because they like caves. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The end. (laughs) So what about Starship Ultralux? What about people who don't like caves? 
I think they can play D&D. <laughs> <laughs> what if they like space? Oh, good transition. So Evan, what if they like space? Um, I think there's a pretty good Star Wars RPG they could play. Mm, fair, fair. And if not, Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Starship Ultralux. So Starship Ultralux is the game that we're going to be putting out before Questlandia 2 because Questlandia 2 is... Big. <laughs> Big. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's more of an experiment in never-ending projects than a role-playing game. That's one of the spaces that it occupies. So, Another subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an experiment in never-ending projects for people who like caves and ghosts. <laughs> so Starship Ultralux is our game about capitalism run amok in space. It is about the... Uh, passengers and crew of the Starship Ultralux, this luxury cruise liner that has gone a million years off course. The currency even has become sentient, and it's about a bunch of people trying to find their way home amidst this um, crumbling luxury hellscape. So what space do we want that to occupy? So one difference of Starship Ultralux compared to any of the other games we've made is that it has a cast of pre-made characters. All the protagonists, the survivors of the ship, are written by us. They have personalities, they have specific mechanics and ways that they play the game, and they are great. They're great. <laughs> In my opinion. We made some really great characters. They're so charming. I feel like we need to name a couple characters. All right. I'm going to say my favorite. Oh, I can't say my favorite because they're all so great. Um, oh. I think that <laughs> I really like Lars. Um, Lars is sort of like this vacation dad type. Um, Lars is an <laughs> alien who uh, I think is the only remaining passenger on the ship, like Everybody else left when the ship was, you know, like encountered some sort of big disaster. And Lars just wanted to get the most of this ticket. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that he'd paid for. So he's, he's an extremely long lived alien. So he just, uh, he just sat out the million years. <laughs> yeah. So Lars likes things like water slides family selfies with a selfie stick, uh, getting up early to wait in lines to beat the crowds. He's jovial. Fanny packs. <laughs> uh, he's great. Um, there's Nefty, the descendant of minks that were brought on board for fur that over the million years evolved to be sentient. Nefty's the last one on board, and they're a anti-capitalist, socialist, revolutionary who is nonetheless extremely into luxury living. Uh, they alternate between trying to radicalize the different passengers and crew of the ship and just savoring the luxurious decadence of the cruise. 
Uh, and then there's Elena. Elena is a human from a vacation planet. Um, Elena's vacation planet was Earth the year that Jurassic Park was released. So like Earth, what, 1993? So yeah, Elena. A simulation of Earth. <laughs> Uh, Elena won a golden ticket for one day of ultra luxury aboard this ship. And Elena's dream has always been to sort of escape the monotony of living on a world stuck in time. And yet here she is on a cruise ship, literally also stuck in a perpetual, like, uh, unreal party, party boat space. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and there's other characters too, but these are a few of them that we've made and uh, we're really fond of them. And so one space that we'd be excited for this game to be able to occupy is a sort of fan fiction space. The idea that we have these set characters, they have their histories, they have their relationships with each other, but now we're going to sit down at the table and tell our own story with them. We're going to you know, bring our own spin to the characters, balancing, being true to what's canon. But everybody wants to see what happens when, you know, Lars officially adopts Elena. <laughs> yeah. It's like, who's Valence the robot going to romance? Everybody wants to know. And fan fiction spaces look a lot of different ways. Like, there's just talking it out with your friends, there's writing your own story, there's sharing stuff online. Um, I don't know how many of those we can occupy with Ultralux, but I like the idea of all of them. If people were, like, writing up the stories that they created through playing this game and sharing them online, that would be a dream. Yeah. So... Another space that we would love Starship Ultralux to occupy is like the science fiction space of like silly, absurdist prediction. Um, this like Douglas Adams has done this, Futurama does this. Like in the future, our vending machines will be snobby about their the contents contained within, like this mix of sort of like technology with like misfiring total failing absurdism <laughs> like the idea that like as we improve our technology it actually becomes just like harder to use and less efficient and more absurd it's really the experience of like the past 50 years where it's you know we've lived through this time of explosive society altering technology constantly changing the world that we're in and being a weird mix always of incredibly advanced and useful and unbelievably stupid and full of ads for singles in our local area. <laughs> you get those ads too in your local area? <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that's just like a normal part of living in this world is being like, what's going to happen with phones in 10 years? Uh, those kinds of conversations, but just replace 10 with a million and you have Starship Ultralex. <laughs> and with that, we also want 
like that also occupies the space of sort of like a respect for the genre without asking people to be physicists. Like it, mm-hmm. it invites that like lighthearted play of like, yeah, you can be here because you like the idea of playing a game in space. And then you can say warp drive or neutrino <laughs> mm-hmm. and or dwarf star and not like have to justify the science of what you're saying. It would also be nice for this game to capture that feeling of like, let's put on an episode of Futurama where you know it's going to be lighthearted. It's like very easy viewing. It's like a popcorn kind of show. Um, but it's not vacant either. You know, it takes some actual interesting concepts, brings them to absurdism, makes a comedy of it. It's fun, but it's not uh, without something to chew on. Mm-hmm. It would be great if playing a session of Starship Ultralux was just like that, where it's like, oh, good, we're going to have like a goofy good time where we get to think about some interesting aspects of the future and technology and our cute characters. So cute. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, one of the spaces that we're targeting with Starship Ultralux is a board and card game space. The game is pretty rules-driven. It has a ton of cards with um, that kind of lead you through what to do next in this pretty structured way. And we want it to be something that's super approachable to folks who might freeze up at that moment in a role-playing game when you're like, now, role-play. <laughs> and right. I'm one of those people like that. That is me. Um, those moments can be really stressful. So something that people who love playing a role playing game can play, but also with this really like guided storytelling that gives a lot of flexibility for like different levels of scale for how much role playing somebody wants to do, even in the same game where you can like delight in your friend who's just like, and then Lars said, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. you can just be like, oh, then Valence rolled the dice. I'm going to roll the dice for Valence to see what happens. And then you have the cards to support you in those moments so that you're still contributing something creative and fun, but with low, low creative overhead mm-hmm. where you're not, you're not directly on the spot. Uh, you're not bearing the burden of entertaining everybody. Yeah. You're just going along with them. Yeah. So a contained, understandable set of rules that uh, lets you tell a great story. That would be nice. That would be (laughs) rad. (laughs) So I guess with Ultralux overall, we're interested in some themes that are maybe more serious or important to us about late-stage capitalism, about uh, community building, about where technology will go in the future. But we want a game that chews on those, but in a lighthearted, approachable way, where you can have fun with them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Does that match your idea of the game? Am I making that up? No, that matches my idea. That's that's lucky that we're on the same page Good about to be it. on the same page. 
(laughs) (laughs) All right. So those are some thoughts on cultural spaces. And I feel like the reason to bring cultural spaces into the mix is that it opens up the ideas of what your game can be. If you're just looking at other products and other RPGs, uh, those are already a closed box of ideas and spaces that can be occupied. And by looking out at the world as we live it and the ways that we walk through the world and interact with each other and interact with our time, we can make games that are more expansive and aren't really in competition with other games, but occupy their own happy space. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, like keep pushing for and advocating for other games to be played and keep challenging the idea that D&D holds this lion's share of the market. Um, you know, just because an indie game isn't in direct competition or just because like a one player itch.io game doesn't occupy the same space doesn't mean that there aren't real reasons why certain creators, why certain types of games, why certain actual plays or YouTube channels like get airtime while other people are consistently in the shadows um, Mm -hmm. despite having matching talents. It's real and it's a problem. And so when we talk about the cultural space of D&D and talking about finding like our own spaces for our own games, it's not because there aren't like real systemic things that lift some people up while keeping others down. So keep saying it. <laughs> like all of this is to totally. say all of this is to say like keep saying there are other games than D&D and here's what they are and you might like them. Yeah. Keep expanding the idea of what playing a game can be. Eggs. Exactly. So, Evan, I know that you you haven't listened to this episode for over a year. That's true. So you don't even know what it was about anymore. I have vague recollections. Um, you know, being the one that edited the episode, I felt like I felt like there was actually something we were getting at in the beginning that I wish we had taken a little bit farther where, you know, we, we talk about all of these different spaces that D and D occupies and like compare it to star Wars a little bit as something that's like big. Yeah. And yeah, my memory is that maybe we talked about star Wars a little bit too much compared to D and D. I remember that you kept <laughs> saying that like a year ago, you kept saying that you kept being like, this is too much star Wars. And that was not my experience. Oh, editing it. that's great. Okay. <laughs> but maybe people can weigh in. I haven't been able to sleep for a year. I think, well, I think we actually cut like a bunch out where I was just talking about star wars for like (laughs) an hour (laughs) as somebody who has neither played D &D nor has watched a lot of star wars right so i feel like in this episode and i'm curious what people think i feel like there is actually i feel like there's another episode here that we could do like i don't feel quite done with this topic of like if we are to keep creating role-playing games in this space that competes with D&D like are we thinking about this all wrong uh-huh are our games even role-playing games the way that D&D is a role-playing game like are we are we even trying to capture and captivate the same people or 
are there spaces that we should be angling for or aspiring towards that are that are closer to that choose your own adventure audience Mm -hmm. it may just be that you know when you approach twitter it's harder to find that it's like who's the who's the choose your own adventure tweeters you know choose your own adventure is a term that a company made up to describe a genre of game that it felt like it was making up or at least wanted to distinguish from any existing genres. Yeah. Uh, This episode has clearly had a long arc and I'm curious what people think, because I think that there's something, something here that maybe we didn't quite capture. um, But I I don't feel quite done with this. Mm -hmm. So if you don't feel quite done with us <laughs> uh-huh. and this topic, uh, you know, consider backing the Turtle Bun Patreon. Yeah. Yeah, you can speak to us with an email or you can speak to us with currency. Either way, <laughs> we're going to get a positive message. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, patreon.com slash turtle bun. And uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a little bit of a weird, a little bit of a weird episode, but you know, we're in weird times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thanks again, heroes, for sticking with us this long. Thank you. <laughs>